This is episode number 731 with world champion Sasha DeJulian. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Helen Keller said, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. And Marcus Aurelius said, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. I am so excited about this episode. Sasha DeJulian is a professional rock climber who in 2012 became the first American woman to climb grade 9A. After leaving high school, she took a gap year to travel and rock climb, concentrating on international competition and outdoor climbing. She won the gold medal at the World Championships, and she has climbed over 31st female ascents as well as eight significant first ascents in South Africa, a big wall in Brazil in 2016, and the Misty Wall in Yosemite in 2017. DeJulian is a three-time national champion in female open, and she has won multiple female open Pan Am championships. From 2004 until the end of her junior career in 2010, she was the undefeated Pan American champion. And wow, I've been excited about this for a while because she inspires me to grow in my own life. When I watch her images, her videos, and, and watch her story over the last couple of years that I got to know her online, I said, I've got to have her in the studio and learn about the way she thinks when you're climbing vertical alone or with a partner and you're climbing this huge mountain vertical that you're sleeping on the side of a rock. How do you stay mentally prepared, mentally tough, mentally focused under all the conditions that are being thrown your way on a cliff climbing thousands of feet? And I said, if I could learn some information, some wisdom from her own experience, and if we could translate that into our own life, if we can translate that into the challenges that we're struggling, into the walls we're climbing and the obstacles we're constantly overcoming, then I thought this would be a very powerful episode, and it definitely is. Make sure to share this with your friends, lewishouse.com slash 731 with Sasha DeJulian. She's an incredible woman. Make sure to follow her over on Instagram and YouTube and all those places as well. And in this interview, we talk about how having an open mind helps with staying focused in your life. Also, how great passion creates the greatest climbers and the greatest achievers in life. Why negativity doesn't get you anywhere. I don't care how frustrated you are about something. The negativity you have in your life will only hold you back. It will not propel you forward. And how to trust the process when you listen to the universe, how to tap into that trust and intuition even more. Super pumped about this. Again, a big thank you to our sponsors for helping us make this one of the best and biggest podcasts in the world and spread the message of greatness, just like we have with our dear friend today. I'm super excited about this one. Let me introduce to you the one and only Sasha DeJulian. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. We've got Sasha DeJulian in the house. What's up, girl? So good excited to, good be to be here. You. I've been trying to get you on for, I think, a year and a half, I was saying earlier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we connected on Instagram, so this is our first time hanging out in, in person, but it's been fun to watch your journey. And I'm always curious and fascinated about connecting with people like yourself because what you do is extremely difficult, and I could never do it. So I appreciate your artistry, <laughs> your work ethic, and your skill level because it's just so much, like I can't even climb like seven feet on a, like an easy wall. I tried this last year where it was like a, a big hand, like handles and everything. Yeah. It was like, man, I suck. My mobility is horrible. Like I can't stay close enough to the wall. I'm just like this big giant on there. So uh, you are. Uh, it's all yeah. relative. It is. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's of like, course. That's that's my little. This is your thing, and you're. Uh, you're a former uh, world champion, is that right? And yeah, three time, right. three-time USA champion. Mm-hmm. And what's the discipline called? So world champion, I was the overall world champion. So that's the combination of all three disciplines. Wow. Sport climbing, bouldering, and speed climbing. And for nationals, it's sport climbing. So nationals and Pan Ams and... Slow competitions. What's the difference between the three? Can you, for those that don't know anything about, yeah, climbing. no, that's a great question. So, speed climbing is basically the most digestible form of competition climbing that you could describe to an audience, and that's whoever gets to the top of a modulated wall wins. Artificial wall. Artificial wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah so and it's the same holds. How tall is the? It's wall? fifteen meters. 15 meters, what is that, 40? Which is about 45 feet. Okay, 45 feet. Yeah. And then sport climbing is also on it. All of competition climbing is on artificial settings. Okay. So sport climbing is more of a difficult path that no one has ever climbed on before. And so it's new to every single competitor. So we're all on like a clean playing field. You don't get to practice beforehand. No, you don't. You just see the wall. You see the wall and then you have one shot to get as high as you can. And then the tiebreaker, the tiebreaker is time. Wow. And then bouldering is similar, but it's a composite of different boulder problems. So normally there's four to five boulder problems. And in each of these, there's rounds. So there's like qualifiers, semifinals, finals. But bouldering is the shorter, more powerful form of climbing. So there's like normally about eight movements and they're on shorter walls. Whereas Sport climbing's on like 15 to 20 meter walls. It's like 45 to 60 feet. Bouldering is on like maximum 15 feet Got it. tall because you don't have wow. a rope. So if you fall, you fall onto what's like a gymnastics pad. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Okay. So you started this when you were really young. Yeah. I started climbing when I was six. And did your dad get you into this or did someone? No. No. So I went to my brother's birthday party at a local climbing gym and he was turning eight. He was a hockey player. I was figure skating. We went. It was like this little group of boy hockey players and me. And then I grew up super competitive with my brother. And I think that like something that was like very engaging about climbing for me was that finally I found what I was better than wow. my brother at. <laughs> First try. Yeah, but so I I did well. I think I had a natural inclination to like do well on the at the birthday party, I mean, whatever that means. And so the gym employee told my mom, hey, Sasha seems to really enjoy this. You know, we have a junior team program, and that was this program that meets, like, each Wednesday and Saturday morning. And so I started going to that. It was, like, a group of youth kids that from the area. I grew up in D.C. Yeah. And then one Saturday morning, I walked into the gym at 7, 
and they were holding a youth regional championship. So that was how I like literally stumbled upon the world of competition climbing. Wow. And yeah. The rest is history. You just kept pursuing it. Yeah. So that's when I, I went to the first competition. I was seven. I competed in 11 and under. I won my category kind of like. First competition? Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, like, like beginner's luck. And then I started competing at a youth level. I started competing. My first international competition was actually the um, North American Championships in Mexico City when I was, I think I was 10 or 11. That's pretty cool. And then that was my first, like, big international competition to win. And then I started competing for the U.S. national team when I was 16 because that's your eligibility for competing for the U.S. on, like, the World Cup circuit. Mm. And then um, did the World Cup circuit, won the World Championships. Then I started transitioning my career more to outdoor climbing. So after you won the World Championships, how old were you then? I was 18. 18. Just turning 19. 18. That's starting to get, like, old in, in the, <laughs> the competition world, right? That's It is. Like, it's on. It's definitely, I mean, in your competition prime, I would say that you're about 16 to 20, 22. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you won the world championships. Was that always the goal as a kid? Was like to go be on the USA team, win the world championships? Yeah, I mean, my goals as a kid was like win nationals or like climb 514, which is a number in climbing that climbing's on this grade scale of five point scale. So as you progress up the numerical scale, it becomes numerically more challenging. So that's like, yeah, exactly. So a five. 5.0 would be 5.0 one. is super easy. It's like a slab, like a it's like inverted. You can walk up. Yeah, it's like like walking on like a Versa climber or something. Oh, uh, really? And then so I could do that. You could definitely okay, do perfect. like higher grades than that. Okay. And then as you get into 5.10, that's when it starts getting like more technically challenging. So like the grades break into subcategories of A, B, C, D, and that's 5.10 A, and then 5.10. B is harder than 5.10A, mm-hmm. and then it goes up to 515. And 5.15. 5.15, yeah. That's like the hardest grade. Is that like straight up? Yeah, that well, like- that's like basically like there's like very minimal holds, and it's at like a, a challenging angle. And, I mean, the beauty of climbing is you fall a million times before piecing together something that you're working on. So while it seems like, I mean, one question I get asked a lot is, do you ever fall? And it's kind of ironic to me because I I fall all the time. I'm not free soloing. What my discipline is is free climbing. So free climbing and free soloing, the difference is that I have a rope. So if I fall, I fall into the rope and I'm totally safe. Mm -hmm. But you fall and hit a rock still, right? Ideally not. Like you fall into air or like you kind of like pendulum softly into the rock. Really? Yeah, so if you're lead climbing, you have different points of security along the way, and you're basically clipping a carabiner into the rock, which is in a bolt, and then you clip your your rope into that carabiner. And then if you fall, you basically fall to your lowest, your carabiner that's How below you. That? Three feet, six feet? Yeah, it could be like 60 feet, it could be 20 60 feet, feet, or it could be 10 feet. could be like, like 60 feet would be like a major fall. Oh my gosh. Um, Have you dropped that far before? Yeah, I've definitely taken some, like, big rope falls. Yeah. 60 feet? Ideally, uh, you're, like, falling in air. And that's, like— So you're not going to fall and then hit the rock. Right. You're falling and you're just, like, in air. 
Yeah, and a lot is trusting your climbing partner because it's the Blair's responsibility to give you a good catch. So, oh my gosh. being so how able do you, to give like yeah. into the dynamicism of the rope. How do you get back if you're falling into air? I'm assuming like the angle. I don't know. You're just like going upside down. I feel like yeah. that's happening. So, how do you actually get back to the rock? So, if you took like a really big fall, you would ideally have what's called a jumar to ascend the rope. And that's like you just put it into the rope and you climb up on the rope. If it's not too big of a fall or if you can reach the rock, then you just kind of pull in the rope yourself. But in order to successfully send a climb, kind of like surfers send a wave, you have to start at the bottom and reach the top without falling. Whoa. So where there's like what I've gotten really into over the last few years is big wall climbing. And that's multiple rope lengths on top of each other. So you could be spending like multiple days on the cliff face. And in order to successfully free climb something, you need to not fall once. So if you start from the bottom (laughs) and you reach the top, maybe it's like 3,000 feet or something, then everything in consecutive order has to be done perfectly. What if you fall once, it won't catch you and bring you back down? Then you have to go back down. All the way back down? So you have to go back down to the last pitch. Okay. And each pitch is broken up by rope lengths. Yeah. How far is that? Could be like 150 feet or so. Oh my gosh. It really depends. Yeah. So if you fall 150 feet, is that even, people do that? Oh, well, you, you, wouldn't would, fall that far. You, you wouldn't fall that far. Gotcha, That's like, like the length of the entire pitch. Gotcha. Hopefully you don't fall 150 feet. That'd if be you bad. Fell, if you fell six feet, you'd have to do the whole 100 Yeah, you'd have to. to go back yeah, down. All the way. No. Yeah. Come on. And that happens all the time. Shut up. So you like, you learn a lot about patience and like the process because it's kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You have all of these different pieces, all these like blank cliff face sequences to put together and try and figure out, okay, how do I get through this one passage that's, like, really challenging? And make it without falling. Yeah. Yeah, and then put them all together. What's the longest? So the natural progression for climbers who are competitive is to go on the the world circuit ranks and and try to win championships and do the artificial climbs, the indoor indoor climbs. It's mostly indoor, I'm assuming. Yeah, indoor. And then once you're max that out, the transition is to go into outdoor That's a really uh, natural progression, yeah, because climbing by nature is an outdoor sport, Mm -hmm. and that's where you can really push the envelope of human capacity because it's like there's this limitless horizon of what you can possibly achieve and places that you can climb, cliffs to ascend. What's the highest mountain you've climbed? I climbed the north face of the Eiger, in Switzerland, and that's, I think, about 13,000 feet. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, you climbed 13,000 feet from the bottom? <laughs> <laughs> or was it like you were halfway up already yeah, and you started yeah, from there? from the bottom. From the bottom. So you yeah. climbed 13,000 feet. Yeah. How long does that take? Actually, we did that particular route in three days. Wow. And it was a first female ascent up one of the climbs. I did it with a climbing partner that we ended up what's called bivying. So you sleep on the side of the mountain Mm -hmm. and then you're just kind of like fully engulfed in the process of climbing big walls or big mountains, which I love because it kind of mutes all the surrounding chaos of our daily lives. Nothing else matters. Yeah. You have to be present. 
So this is a three-day climb with one other person. Yeah. And you were the first female to complete it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first female ascent, is that what it's called? Yeah, first female ascent. So a lot of my career in outdoor climbing is doing first ascents or first female ascents around first the world. First ascent for any human? Yeah. Wow. That's that's the goal. That's really cool. So I, I mean, climbing, like, it brings you everywhere because— there is basically a place to climb around the world in every remote location you can think of, except for barren deserts. Or right. Normally there's some sandstone there. Though. There's something. Yeah. There's something to climb. <laughs> so now when you do these first ascents, you always go with someone else, though, or do you do them alone? Yeah, I always go with someone else, and often because you need a climbing partner. So the climbing partner that you have is who you're doing these climbs with. So normally you're climbing together or your climbing partner is just belaying you and supporting you. And then often I go with a film crew too because a lot of, I mean, professional climbing, like how you make a living is through your endorsement deals. Mm. And then a lot of what we do is content creation. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have content, then it's like maybe you get one or two photos or something and that's it, right? Yeah, what's what's interesting content. is like in today's world, I mean, social media has shifted the whole lens and landscape of what professional climbing looks like because now instead of just talking about my adventures, I can share them on like a live basis, which is really cool. Yeah, your Instagram's amazing. It's so inspiring. <laughs> it's just like these epic shots of you like thousands of feet up. You're just like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. How do you stay focused when it's like, okay, I'm about to climb this next step, but it's it's a scary moment. Like, yeah. like this, I don't know, there's uh, uneven footing or... Yeah, no, that's oh, there's a good nothing. Have there ever been a place where you're a thousand feet up and there's nowhere to grab? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you, um, you encounter parts of a climb that you don't think are physically possible for you. And you a lot goes into, like, kind of whittling down all the little pieces and trying out different ways that you can find a solution. Because you'll try it and you'll fall a bunch. Yeah. A few feet or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And you keep, like, pulling back on. No way. Trying something else. Fall. Pull back on. Try and find, like, a little credit card size, like, protrusion in the rock to, like, dangle off of. And then if that doesn't work, then you either, like, just keep banging your head on it or, like, train harder and return. Um, What happens if it doesn't work? Do you just go back down? Yeah, sometimes. Shut up. Seems like a thousand feet in the air. Yeah, you could be like, I can't do this right now. And there's 50 feet to go. Yeah. If you can literally be stopped if you're like on like a 3,000 foot climb, you can be stopped by six feet. Because like if something doesn't go, if you can't physically do it, a move, then that can be like the end all. But I think a lot of what climbing's taught me is like there's often a solution. You just have to kind of like open your mind up to different possibilities and a lot of climbing, what's so intriguing about the sport physically to me is that it can be the smallest difference in body positioning that makes all the difference. So it's like a very upper body, um, hand strength oriented sport, but you're really using your entire body, like your core, your hips, normally the driving force. You have ideally like using your footwork really well because you have to balance on like tiny little nubbins and shift your weight and allocate so that you can... um, exert enough force to move up the wall. Yeah. I feel bad now when I have these 20-foot artificial walls with huge handholds and I can't even get up half that high. But, like, the artificial wall is going to be really challenging. Really? I mean, yeah. So a lot of pro climbers train indoors. Like, I train at a climbing gym 
in order to prepare for my outdoor mm-hmm. climbs. I even built a gym at my house. No way. Yeah. That's cool. It's fun. That's really cool. It's like no excuses. Every room in my house has like some sort of training equipment. <laughs> like, <It's just> like <laughs> do I live in a gym or is my house turning into a gym? That's I don't amazing. Know the balance. That's really cool. Work-life balance. What's the key to being one of the greatest climbers? Like, what's the principles and the fundamentals? I I'm, think, I'm hearing um, footwork. I'm hearing total body core, everything. But what's like the real principles? I mean, not to be not to be cheesy or anything, but I think just being really passionate about it. Like, in my opinion, you can succeed at whatever it is that you really will yourself to want. And if you love what you're doing, then just naturally you're going to do it a lot and put in the hours of practice and engage your mind and your body and perform optimally. Yeah. And, like, I love the climbing community so much. There's just this interconnected nature of it around the world. Like, I could go to Spain and have, like, this Spanish family that I connect with through this overarching passion. Or I could go to Madagascar or South America, like, wherever it is. There's always this climbing community that you can connect with because you're both, you're all doing something that you really love. Wow. I think passion in my opinion, is the number one ingredient to succeeding in anything. Yeah. Is it more male-dominated or female-dominated? It's definitely male-dominated. And the background of climbing, I think it's just like the background of climbing was traditionally many men were doing it. And now there are definitely a lot more women getting into climbing, which is like Amazing. I love to see it, and especially on the gym front. Yeah. Climbing has been exploding at its seams from the gym industry. Like, gyms are popping up in urban locations around the world. But the transition from from indoor climbing to outdoor climbing is still, like, I think more men are making that transition than women. But as I go to more popular, what's called, like, sport climbing areas, Mm -hmm. then I'm seeing more women. I think that, like... Women just need to see other women doing it and be like, oh, yeah, that's, like, why not? And that's why I feel strongly about, like, first female sense and first ascents in general. It's like you don't need to be held back. If you see, if I see that a woman has done something, I can be so much more inspired and connected to that than if I see a male has done it because maybe it's less relatable. But the beauty of climbing, too, is that women and men – are both capable of achieving the same heights, the same climb. so to speak, yeah. It, I almost feel like women have more of an advantage because of, you know, being tinier, smaller, and the strength in that size, right? Yeah, on certain climbs, certainly. Like, women have a tendency to have really good technique. Mm. I mean, mobility, like, obviously everything. men too, but yeah, and like hip mobility, Climbing is a strength-to-body-weight ratio sport, so Mm. the stronger you are, then that's really good, but you also want to be in total, like, body control and awareness. So it's kind of like, I mean, in your ideal state, it's like a dance with the wall. Mm. Did you take dance lessons? I used to do ballet, and I did figure skating. I competed in figure skating, and that was kind of like, so I'm dual citizen with Canada, and, like, my whole family is, like, Skiing, skating, yeah. winter sports. So I'm the only person in my family who climbs, actually. Wow. Did figure skating help you to be a better climber? 
I think ballet and figure skating gave me good body awareness. Mm -hmm. Like another sport that has a really good crossover is gymnastics. Did you do gymnastics too or no? I didn't, no. But I love watching the gymnastics. Can you do backflips and everything? Uh, No, sadly. No? I I don't think it's like... I don't know if I've tried backflips. Have you ever tried to do just like a pull-up challenge? Pull-up challenges? Oh. Just like how many can you do? Yeah, yeah. We do a lot of pull-ups in training. A lot of times are weighted pull-ups because that's a quicker way to gain strength. Like holding like 100 pounds (laughs) between your legs. It's crazy. How many pull-ups can you do just free free body? Um, Not weighted. In a row. Yeah. Probably around like 30 to 40. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. It's inspiring. You've got to be able to do that, though. You need that endurance. Yeah, you need... Um, so something that I installed at my house, for instance, is a tread wall. And that's like a treadmill, but it's a rotating wall. So you could climb, like, thousands of feet in one oh, session wow. without actually vertically gaining. It's a wall that moves and has... It moves, yeah. Has, and then you can set different climbs on it. And you can take off holds, change them out, and then you can change the speed at which the motor goes. That's so amazing. from a notch of like one to ten. So that's something that I use a lot. That's cool. And why it's like helpful at my house. Wow. Um, and then I have like a hangboard, which is where yeah. you hang from your fingertips normally with like added weight or train. What I'm currently training right now is one arm pull ups. You do? I'm like close, close. but I can't put with like, proclaim just fingertips? That I can like do a one arm. Um, yeah, I do it on a climbing hold because so, that's the most um, applicable. Yeah. What about if you just grabbed a bar? Do you think you can do it? I think that I'd be close. I think that I can hold the locks, which is like holding certain positions, but I'm too weak still to do really? a full one hour. You're too weak? <laughs> How is that even possible? I'll blame it on the boot. It's added weight. There you go. There you go. How do you manage stress levels when you're in a difficult situation Yeah, on a wall? So I've definitely been in really stressful situations where one time on one of my first big walls, I was climbing and we got to a point where we got off route and we had to untie and basically make a decision of if we were going to simul-climb our way to the top. What's that mean? Simul-climb is when you're connected to your climbing partner and if you fall, then, you know, like, you both go down. Oh, my gosh. But there's the off chance of the other climber being able to hold you both. But, it, you know, it's like it's not likely. And this is, like, not a scenario that I would normally get into, but it's just the extreme situation of what climbing brings you to the moment. And it was because we were doing a big wall, and on big walls, normally you have to get to the top after a certain point because you can't repel down the entirety of a route. Oh, my God. Um, and so when you get to the summit, then there's normally a rappel line that you go down or it's like a hike. And we had about like 100 vertical feet left in front of us. And we couldn't find any sort of gear to secure it to you. The rock was super malleable and loose. And then the other option was to continue to the top, just like free solo. And free soloing is not something that I do on a regular basis. Like I'm actually quite not in favor of free soloing. Our community has lost a lot of people, and it's also like if you fall, it's a mathematical certainty that you're death. Gonna die. Yeah, exactly. But in this situation, it was kind of like this is our reality. So in that moment, there's no room for thinking about like what could go wrong because that's just all of this negative energy that's going to be compounded 
and make that chance more likely. So you have to really, like, I had to just focus on my breath and be like, I'm getting to the top and just, like, think positively and channel all of my concentration and energy wow. towards climbing and reaching the summit. And and How high up were you at this point? We are about, like, 1,000 feet. 1,000 feet. Off so the ground, you, so yeah. So you did free solo or you did Yeah, we had to free solo. And this is, like, one of those situations where, I like, risk mitigation of, like, fear and irrational fear, rational fear. This was, like, rational fear to have of, like, I can't fall. And then also navigating loose rock. And this was in the Dolomites in Italy. How and steep is this? This is pretty vertical. It's, like, vertical. Yeah, and I was climbing, and my left hand and my left foot broke. And, like, I could feel the weight of this rock just, like, fall into this blank wisp of darkness. And it was, like, kind of like this mind-body convergence of I just kind of, like, I think I tapped into that flow state of just getting to the top. Wait a minute. And <laughs> Your left hand and left foot broke. What do you mean? Like, like the rock. The pulled, rock broke. Uh, yeah. So you're climbing, and it's like... The epic movie scene where it just <laughs> falls back and you're hanging from one arm. You're like, ah! <laughs> yeah. And you're 100 feet from the top, 1,000 feet up. Yeah, that's that. And if that. you would have, if the other hand would have broke as well, you'd be dead. That's it, yeah. Shut up. That's crazy. Yeah. So wait a minute. There was two options. You could free solo or you could do the other one, which was... Simulcline, which is being connected to each other. But if one person arm. falls, then you'd both die. Right. I mean, if the right? other person can't. If they can't hold it, but if you're right. vertical, who's going to be able to hold it? It's going to be difficult. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So you both decided to free solo. Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, in climbing, this is a really rare situation. Like, that's happened to me. That was probably one of the most extreme situations that I've been in in climbing. But uh, you have to just confront what the reality in front of you is sometimes. And make decisions based on I will always make the most safe decision and that's why this scenario was so rattling to me because I don't free solo and we kind of we had to in that situation and it's kind of like you have to make do with what you have could you not have gone back down it would have been really yeah not not really on this particular climb thousand feet down like it's really hard to do that, right? Yeah, so... Can't rappel down, like, from that point? Not, no. Normally, when you're on a big wall, it's hard to bail after a certain point. Really? Because you go through a lot of terrain that's really divergent, and in the Dolomites particularly. In somewhere like Yosemite, you can always, like, bail down. You don't have to get to the top. You can get back down or more vertical, like, clean faces. You can do that, but not here. Certain mountains, you have to kind of like once you're in it, you're in it, so there's, and you have to commit. And you know that going into it, like there's no coming down after 500 feet or whatever, right? After yeah. a certain terrain, so you know going into this climb that like it we have also, to make it to the top. Yeah, it was also nearing nighttime, and so like oh you want to get to the top to get off of the actual mountain. So um, how long were you guys, I guess, climbing until you? are failing until you had to make this decision. Yeah, we didn't fall there. We just were trying to find like points of security, like a bowl or somewhere we, where we could put a piece of equipment. And like, a, um, like a friend or a cam is what it's called. And that's like a- A bolt. 
a device, yeah, that you use for trad climbers use that. And you put this device into a fissure and there's different sizes that match up with the different size of the slot in the rock. And that's that is just as safe as a bolt if you know what you're doing and how to place it. Yeah, exactly. If you fell, you'd be hanging. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're on really malleable rock that could break. It's not secure. Yeah. There's Holy not cow. Secure. Okay. So how long were you thinking? Like you can't find a space to, to lock in or to plug yeah. in or whatever it is. How long is that until you had to make a decision either way? Yeah, probably or... under an hour for sure. So you're trying to find a thing for an hour. Yeah. Because sometimes you can just get lost on like a particular cliff face. If it's big and with with a lot of the climbs in the Dolomites, like it's it's not that clear of the path, and a lot is route finding. And like the hardest part of our climb, the physically and technically most challenging, was earlier on in the day, and we got through that part um, quite quickly. Hmm. But then the more adventurous aspect of it, which actually is where stuff gets really dangerous, was where we ended up getting to the summit at about like 9 p.m. And having to sleep at the top that night. Wow. Unprepared. Unprepared. No tenor. <laughs> it was hailing. Yeah, oh it was gosh. really cold. It's like probably the coldest night of my life. So are you hanging from your <laughs> are you hanging from your rope for this hour? Are you holding on to the side of the rock for an hour? Like Yeah, well, so like we were at the last anchor that we saw. Uh-huh. And so an anchor is like you are secure. Yeah, so you can hang. Yeah, like so you holding can hang on. You don't have to like, hold on. Be right. like searching on the rock while traversing around. Wow. But yeah, so this is like not to scare you because this is like, I've been climbing for 20 years and this has happened once. Wow. But I guess the point being like, there are extreme circumstances that if you are pushing your envelope in outdoor climbing, sometimes you face extreme risk. And sometimes you face risk that actually isn't risk and it's more like you're high up off your last protection piece and it seems scary to let go and fall, but you're actually going to be totally fine. And that's where I would say that I classify, like, rational fear and irrational fear. So, like, that you can get down to the root of, like, why am I scared of falling? And maybe that's because the irrational fear would be it's just, like, a scary airfall. Yeah, yeah. And then the rational fear would be, like, well, there's this huge ledge beneath me and I could break my leg. Then it's, like, yeah, you have, like, a right to be scared. And so it's a lot about, like, choices and trusting your gear, trusting your climbing partner, trusting yourself. Wow. And not thinking about negative circumstances. Like, yeah. sometimes you just have to act. So you got 100 feet to go. <laughs> Back to this, About yeah. to 100, 100 feet to go. You're yeah. like, okay, we're going to free solo. That means you unclip from everything. Yeah, like you the coil the rope and carry it. You carry it up. But as you're looking up to this top, 1,000 feet up, and you're seeing, okay, I'm about to free solo this. Do you see the route you're going to take? Like, do you see it before you take it? Or is it just a one step at a time looking for the next hold? Yeah. So, like, this last stretch of the climb was actually really easy terrain. So, we knew that we were capable. It's just, like, the rock was really loose. Mm. And finding the right way that's going to be, like, the most solid rock. And also, you don't want to get off route, but you don't really know where the route is. So you're just kind of like navigating the sea of limestone. But you can feel different holds, like it's sturdy holds for you. Yeah. You can feel it. It's not like there's nothing. So kind of like um, with professional skiers or professional surfers, 
professional rock climbers, you learn how to read rock faces. Mm -hmm. So I can look up at a cliff and see the most accessible way to get to the top. Wow. And that's based on like what what protrusions in the rock you see, where you see like different angles, curvatures. You just kind of become an expert at reading that because that's what you're doing all the time. Wow. And so when your left hand and left foot like broke <laughs> off and you're hanging, did you have a fear that you were going to die then? Or was it like this sense of calm, you, you got this? Yeah, no, this was one of my first big wall experiences and I was definitely um, freaking out <laughs> for a moment. And what was a really big turning point for me was the point that I was like, all of the, like, whatever I want to say to my climbing partner, whatever, like, blame or anxiety or negativity that I feel about this situation, he's in the exact same situation. He can't help me. Only I can help me get out of this, and that's by being in control of myself. So it's kind of like, like on a more micro level, like negative energy and negative thoughts and doubt doesn't get you anywhere. The only way to actually progress up the mountain or the climb or whatever it is, it's like by thinking positively, by thinking about what you can do to get out of a bad situation and thinking like forward. Mm. So, I mean, that was kind of like the situation that, had to be in control. What's your thought process before going into a big climb or a first ascent? What do you visualize the day before, the morning of, yeah. and throughout the entire climb? So before a big wall, something that I really like to do is laying out everything that's in my pack. So like if I need my sleeping bag or sleeping mat and like my lunch for on the wall, normally I'll bring like, I actually make my own bars. So normally I'll bring like some bars and like beef jerky or turkey jerky and I normally crave like salty foods on the wall not not sugary yeah. especially if you're doing something like alpine because it's cold and you kind of want like heartier stuff and then like your climbing gear I'll always lay out like my different layers that I'm bringing so like a soft shell a down jacket a Gore-Tex shell and then I'll put it all in and then it's like okay I'm ready to go and then it's super exciting because normally you start super early or like this summer I was doing what was called the Canadian Trilogy, which were three of the most challenging big walls in the Canadian Rockies. And I wanted to do the first female ascent of them and the second wow. ascent. And some of the days were like 18 plus hour days. And so you're kind of you like- sleep on the wall. No, I was doing them all in, I wanted to do them each in a day. So I, we would leave at like five or 5.30 in the morning, hike for about four hours get to the base of the climb, then you're on the climb for about like 12 hours. Wow. And then you come back down and then you're hiking out into like the early dawn. And You belay, you belay down or you climb? You rappel down, yeah. It's called belay or rappel? Rappel, yeah. What's belay? Belay is when you're, um, when you're belaying your climber, so you're, the climber is going up, then you have your belayer who's supporting you. Got it, got it, okay, cool. This is crazy, this is a whole nother world. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like we have a little, I mean, climbing's growing, but there are still a lot of people who are unfamiliar of even the fact that climbing is a profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so what do you think about on the climb? Because you, you map everything out, you lay it out, you prepare that, but what's the, the thought process? Are you daydreaming? Are you just present in the moment and just thinking of the next 
positioning for your hand? Are you thinking about family? I mean, what's going through your mind for 18 hours a day? Because you got to think yeah. about something. Um, yeah. Do you sing to yourself? Do you listen to podcasts? What, what is you it know, it's interesting because it really depends what portion of the climb I'm on. On the most difficult parts of a climb, I'm really present, and I'm thinking about what each next movement. And it could be like I'm narrating to myself, okay, right hand, turn, under cling, left hand, grab this, shift your hip, move your foot, like play by play. Wow. And then if I'm on a more easier section, then I'm, you know, my mind can kind of wander a little bit, but I'm probably less in tune with like that flow state of when I'm optimally just like firing. And I'm only thinking in the present, my mind and my body are kind of like converged together. And I think that that happens a lot when it's like the like eight hour mark and you've been climbing and you hiked before that for four hours and you're just like fatigued, but something is like pushing you through it and you're just like in it. And then a lot of big wall climbing is also systems. So setting up your belay system to help your partner or like hauling up your bag or organizing your rope like there's a lot of management that goes into it so sometimes you're like thinking like this damn rope is tangled and I'm like hanging here (laughs) and I'm just like why is it windy like there's all sorts of things that you can be thinking of but I also sometimes like kind of like have little mantras that go through my head what are those through like you can you can or like hold on hold on Something like that. Don't, don't symbol. not let go, let go. <laughs> <laughs> just let go, relax. Let go, no. let go, yeah, no. Hold on. Hold on. You can. You can. Um, you just say it over and over. Or yourself. like, just go, just go, just go. Um, wow. Do you say it out loud or like, internally? Kind of like internally, yeah. Yeah. Who taught you the power of mantras? I think it was just like trial by error, like trial by fire. I don't... I haven't really learned um, any formal coaching on mantras, but I really do believe in listening to the universe. And I think that if you open yourself up to what the universe is trying to say to you, then there's this timing and process to life that makes sense. If you let it, it make sense. So everything in my life, I mean, I feel like when I look back, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. The timing or the situation that that negative experience led me to a positive experience. It's kind of interesting. Like, I think that makes me less anxious if I just trust the process. Even right now, I have this air boot on because I have a fractured fibula. And it's like, when I did that, it was after, I mean, I was training for the New York City Marathon and I was on a climbing trip through Europe and then Jordan and then back to Europe. And so I had this pain in my leg and I was like, I don't know why my leg is so painful, but I'm just going to keep charging on. And I was like hiking with a heavy pack and climbing. And and run, training for running? Tra- yeah, training for the marathon. Like not listening to my body. But then I got to Germany and I got an MRI and I learned that I had a stress fracture. So I was like, oh, good thing that my pain tolerance isn't negligible at least. Yeah. But then with I was given this air boot and I arrived to this series of like a conference in Miami with the International Women's Forum. And I had all of these kind of like blossoming business ideas that I needed to be in one place to actually like take advantage of and organize, I think, just like give my life a little room to breathe and be home and get grounded again. Yeah. 
So then I saw this air boot as like life's way of saying slow down and listen to your body and just be still. And I think now I'm in a much healthier mindset than I was when I was like not stopping traveling because I was like on the road for like about four months straight um, up to this point of like, okay, now you're going to like chill. Yeah. Like one point. come inward and get your life. Just like, let it chill a little be home. Wow. My house is in Boulder, but I'm like never there. Yeah. And I love Boulder. <laughs> yeah, I have good. a cat who's like, Hey, Where welcome I- to my house. <laughs> <laughs> when you have a good cat that yeah. can take care of itself, it is like a dog. It is chill. That's She's the, super personal. That's yeah. the best. That's Pixie. the best. What's the greatest challenge you feel like you've had to overcome in your life? Oh man, um, I think one uh, one big challenging chapter of my life was I was a full time student at Columbia, and I was also managing my professional career as a climber. Living and in New York City. Living in New York City, yeah, and I love New York City. It's probably my favorite city in the world, but it's not like a city where you can really climb outside a lot. I was traveling mm-hmm. about like Thursday evenings through Monday evenings. I would be like in Beijing for a signing for Adidas or like in Japan for a competition. Just like kind of like always living on the plane half of my week and doing my schoolwork on the plane. But also like think trying to manage being a full-time student while also maintaining my career and not letting my physical performance slip too much, but also having to recognize the back seat that climbing was going to take for this particular time frame was kind of mentally and physically challenging because I think like as athletes particularly we're really hard on our bodies and on ourselves like if we're not getting the physical performance that we want out of ourselves then I had to learn how to be just like kinder to myself and be like it's okay you have a lot going on but you don't really like notice that in the moment so you're like why am I not performing at this level that I was last year and you don't really comprehend like the obvious like oh maybe it's because you're like doing this 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 and this on top of it all so having graduated from school I felt like I had this like big weight off my shoulders to really just focus in on my climbing career Mm -hmm. again yeah which was nice and I'm so thankful that I went to school though because I grew up in a family that like academics were number one and Hmm. climbing climbing was something that my parents were really supportive of me doing that because that's what I was passionate about. But they never provided any sort of, like, they weren't, like, if you don't win nationals, that's, like, you're terrible type thing. They were more, like, you need to get straight A's at school. Um, and then you can And then you climb. can take off time to go climbing. Wow. Um, wow. But they really saw, like, this, like, academics and athletics balance converge really well. And so I think that, what I'm really thankful that they pushed on me was just the importance of putting my best self forward. And like, my dad was always like, have fun, try your hardest and be safe. And that was like the three things that was like, have fun, try your hardest. Didn't matter if you like won or lost, as long as you like put your best self forward and then like be safe was like parent denominator. That's great, yeah, always be safe, right? Well, who was uh, more influential in your life growing up, mom or dad? I would say that my mom and I had a closer relationship 
just we are probably more similar. My dad w- played football mm-hmm. and was really into watching hockey games. I grew up going to the Capitals games. We had season tickets. I I love hockey. My buddy my played favorite. with him for 10, 11 seasons. Brooks like. Oh oh yeah, I know of him. Yeah yeah. I'm a big <laughs> hockey fan. <laughs> And then when I was in New York, the Rangers were like the team that I'd root for, but the Caps were always, I mean, when they won the Stanley Cup, yeah. I was like, this is amazing. Crazy, yeah. But um, my mom actually learned how to belay me. So she would come to the gym and belay me when I was training, and then like my coach would tell me what to do, and she would be there to support. It's amazing. But I never once like shared a contract with my parents, nor like asked them for any like professional help. And I think that that was a little bit of like me proving myself in this niche mm. sport that when I grew up, like professional climbing wasn't something that was what I aspired to do because professional climbing wasn't really like a thing. It was like professional climbers, people that I looked up to like lived in their vans in Yosemite and like were dirt bags. <laughs> and that's not to like knock that culture. Yeah. It's just like they weren't sponsored with like, like well supportive contracts and living wherever they wanted and traveling around the world. Yeah. That's kind of been like a new thing. What has brought that that to uh I guess to brands to be more invested in yeah. What what is that? Is that different content that people are putting out there? Is that movies? Is that I think that that's um access to content. Like we now have so many platforms to share content. Yeah. And also I mean the gym industry is definitely leading this this fitness trend of like climbing is this social form of exercise that's a really great all body sport. Climbing is like this gateway to the outdoors yeah. that is similar to skiing. Like families go on ski vacations, and you can do a destination climbing vacation. Mm, like that's cool. you can bring your family to Spain and go climbing or go to Yosemite. And then also, I think it's just like people who are spokesperson spokespeople of the sport of climbing doing their job of like trying to reach a broader audience like for my career I just really want to inspire more people to know about what climbing is and even if they don't climb just like see my career as like you can do whatever you're passionate about and even if it's not a professional ready you can create that path Mm, and make a living off of it yeah, exactly. Because you're making a full-time living doing your passion, even though it's not like this popular, yeah. big mainstream sport or activity or, you call it a sport? Yeah, sport. Even if it's outdoor and there's no like competition, it's still Yeah, because there is competition, but but yeah, adventure sport adventure is sport, really the yeah. category of climbing. Like climbing, I mean, my contracts are what put me through Columbia. Wow. Now, yeah, you you can be a climber and make a good living off of the sport like any other, I think, like high-end elite athlete. But it's definitely a new a new discipline of, I mean, yeah. it's a new sport. Yeah. And it's, uh, we have really purist roots. And there's sides of climbing that are really anti-corporate sponsors. And then there's like a new age that's really accepting of like, we want to grow our sport. We accept these bigger companies being involved because that means more exposure and more support to giving back and conservation and our nonprofits. Like the more you educate people to care about the environment because they're being interactive with it, Mm. then I think the more inclined they are to protect it as well. 
And as a climber, like we naturally have this affinity for the outdoor spaces and for conservation because that's our natural playground. Yeah. Wow. Do you have a lot of friends who've died from the sport? I do like, have. Like close friends or? Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely suffered some significant losses in our community. And, and I mean, there are certain people that I've lost that have really rattled me in, in ways that have either been close friends or just people that I've, like, looked up to and seen as, like, like uh, Dean Potter, for instance. Mm-hmm. His death, he was always known as, like, the safe and calculated climber, even yeah. though what he was doing was so extreme. And then I think, like, he died base jumping, but it really put the climbing community at, like, this point of, like, no one's indestructible, and we're all mortal. And I think that that's, that's really my um, my issue with free soloing is that it just takes one mistake. And, one like, yeah. that's it. How many people are free soloing a year? Mm, not many. I'm a very, sli- a very small percentage. 20? Is this 100? Is this... I think you'd probably need to do like more like a percentage of climbers, and that's probably like one percent. One percent, yeah. Of like, you know, like Alex Honnold, obviously, probably a lot of people have seen free solo. That's such an anomaly. Yeah. Like, even Tommy Caldwell in the film, who is my hero in the film, spoke so candidly about what free soloing is, and and he's like one of the great all time legends in climbing, but he doesn't free solo because I mean. If I fall, it's okay. Maybe I break something. But the having gone through personal loss from, like, family to friends, I know that, like, I don't want to put my family through my own passing. Yeah. I want to be there. And um, I've just, like, seen firsthand what loss can do to a family. And that's really hard to comprehend, like, why I would selfishly decide to do that to— yeah. To my friends and family. Yeah. Because you're already at risk, but you're just taking calculated risks and being as safe as you can. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which, like, after that story I told you, people were probably like, yeah, right. But, like, that was one time in, like, mm-hmm. you know, my, like, 20 years of climbing. And I've definitely had, like, risky situations that were maybe similar. But I think a lot is, like, knowing how to use your equipment, being as expert as you can about your systems and knowledgeable and why like with climbing there's like this endless potential of growth and wisdom that you can get for the mountains and for climbing that you stay humble because I mean the mountain doesn't care like what's gonna happen doesn't to have you. feelings yeah no emotion no emotion coming it's, from it it's a rock yeah solid rock now you solid lo- rock. <laughs> now you lost you've lost many friends but you said you also lost People in your family, your, has your dad passed away? Yeah, he had a stroke in 2014 and never woke up from it. And what was that like for you and your family? And did it change your path down your career in a, in a different way? Or did it just confirm to go down it in a deeper way? I think um, when I lost my dad, it brought a lot more awareness to being present in the moment and just appreciating the people in my life. I had just gone on a trip from, we drove from Montreal back to DC where I grew up, my dad and I. And then I took off to, I was taking off to Wyoming 
and I was going there on a climbing trip. And what was really interesting was that I was like a clear bluebird day and my flight, he brought me to the airport and my flight was canceled and it was delayed 24 hours. And he was like, hey, dad, can you pick me up? And they like, came, picked me up at the airport. We went and spent the night, we watched the Kings versus the Rangers. It was the year that they were in the playoffs together. Got burgers, then the next morning he brought me to the airport and I took off to Wyoming. And it was like, then two weeks later, my mom called me from the ambulance and was like, dad just had a stroke. And I was out climbing, I drove straight to the airport and I was like, I'll be there for when he wakes up. And there was like this week in the hospital, just waiting, not knowing what's gonna happen. And then he never did come to from that. But it's like moments like that where I look back and I'm like, no, that's so interesting that like, why was my flight canceled? Or like, you can kind of like think about that and then no matter what you believe, you can just like see moments as like having appreciation for them. And I think that in my life, over the years, I've definitely fine-tuned like I have a lot of comfort and self-confidence through climbing and that's like a part of my identity and it's given me a lot of direction with my life but then appreciating like who my friends who are the closest to me are and my brother my mom and I have a really close relationship and some of my cousins my aunts and uncles also like we're um they're all in Canada so that's kind of like where I call home when I say like I'm going back for Christmas I go to Canada Mm -hmm. my mom's in Montreal and we grew up at the house of Montremont. But I think just like maintaining contact with the relationships that you have and not just like taking people for granted mm. is important. Yeah. And that's something that, I mean, even as the years go by, I become more appreciative of it because once you're, I mean, you know, like once you're in a more public sphere, you have to kind of filter like the intention of people sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes me more appreciative of the grounding, like loving forces in my life. And like, that's where I feel the most whole. Wow. Would you say that was one of the biggest lessons you took away from his death or? Yeah, I think that appreciating the moment and being aware that nothing is certain, like, Things was, he, can change. was he a healthy guy? Was he? Yeah, there was no lead up. I really? mean, it was just like this. He was at the coffee table in our dining room with my mom, my brother, and then he fell over, and the ambulance came actually right away. We lived in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. Like 10 minutes away or something, yeah. Super quick. But it was a hemorrhagic stroke, I think mm. is what it's called. And there was like excessive bleeding in his brain, which wow. shot all neurological functioning and and you saw him a couple weeks before he's healthy he worked out or he was ate pretty healthy or he was like big he was italian so he was oh, like sure. always throwing the steaks on the grill and okay. like probably ate way too much red meat and gotcha like there were probably like health concerns that you could look at in mm-hmm. retrospect mm-hmm. but from our state everything was fine yeah seemed fine yeah yeah but he was really stressed and that's another thing is like stress he was running his own business and like I think that stress is such a killer like it's I mean literally you know I had a friend on a couple weeks ago Robert Green who came out with this a new book and it took him five years to complete the book and he had a stroke when he finished it 
And he says a lot of it, he thinks, was due to the stress that he put himself through because he put he had so much pressure that he created for himself yeah. to have this perfect book, you know, and his, his legacy. He worked out every day. He ate very clean. But the stress, he thinks, is what caused the cause of stroke, which is a reminder and a wake-up call for us to never allow the stress to ruin and run our lives and to, to manage the stress. And oh, yeah, Us totally. be in control of it, you know. And I think it's our responsibility to be aware of it. You know, if it's happening for a long periods of time, we really get to reassess and reflect and be aware on how we're going to shift it and take ownership over that stress level. Yeah. Through meditation or through sleeping more or through reshifting our focus on what we're, you know, what we're stressing on. So I'm such a proponent of sleep. It's like key. I I could not believe more in the necessity of 8 hours. Sleep is crucial. I was just listening to an interview this morning with LeBron James on Tim Ferriss's show actually. And he was like, I need 8, 9, 10 hours of sleep, otherwise I'm going to nap throughout the day. Because as an athlete, you need to be focused yeah. mentally. And your body needs to recover, obviously, but you need to have the mental clarity. And if you are lacking sleep, you're not going to have the mental clarity. Yeah. And that's that's the key. And then I'm, like, sick. Like, boom. If I don't get enough don't sleep, sleep yeah. if it's, like, more than two days, I'm like, I'm out. You're sick for, yeah. like, a few days. Yeah. You need to recover. Your body's shutting down. Now, when you're on the side of a mountain sleeping... <laughs> Because you do some climbs where you have to bring like yeah, a whole tent. a portal edge. What's it called? A portal edge. Portal edge. Not yeah. a portal potty. Not a portal potty. <laughs> they have to like figure out how to go to the bathroom up there. How, is that even, how do you even do that? Um, if you're with someone else and you're. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you get to know your climbing partner really well. <laughs> if you. So, you want me to break it down? Break it down to sleeping on the side of a mountain. Okay, great. Where it's like. Yeah, so the portal edge is like a four foot by six foot, basically like a hammock that you set up and you secure on three points on the wall. Three points of security, ideally. And you sleep with a harness on. I normally take the leg loops off my harness, so it's like a waistband. <laughs> and you, you you sleep in the sleeping bag. Like, I've... A thousand feet up, not, 2,000 feet Not up. ever rolled off, but, you know, like... You have to secure it so it's flat out from the wall. But yeah, when you wake up, you like look down and you've got like thousands of feet of cliff below you. Crazy. Do you sometimes think when you wake up, like I'm, I'm in my bed in, in Colorado? Um, you have to remind I yourself. I never oh, sleep that well on the portal edge. You're like just in and out constantly. Yeah, a little bit like, um, I mean, it's not comfortable. Like sleeping on a hammock isn't that comfortable. No kind of wake up and you're like, ugh, I can't really move around yeah. or like kind of like have this illusion that you're like falling, but you're like not falling. But the views are amazing. The views are totally <laughs> worth it. Yeah. Wow. So how, the reason that you do that yeah. is like because when you're doing a big wall and if it's like over a certain amount of feet, then maybe you need multiple days to do it in order to successfully do a big wall from the bottom to the top. You have to do everything consecutively. It's crazy. So you sleep and then you like continue on. Maybe you're doing like eight to twelve hour days of climbing and then sleeping on the portal edge, eight to twelve hours of climbing, like making your way it's consecutively. Crazy. It's crazy. It's it's I mean, it's not crazy. You're in the in a, yeah. you're in it. Yeah, like like from the outside. What you do is crazy yeah, to me. Sure. But from the outside, I could in, never do it. I know, just the side of a mountain like that. That's nuts. <laughs> What's your vision moving forward with all this? 
doing these crazy ascents all over the world and being yeah. a global citizen and being, um, being a female championing this mindset and this vision that you have, what's, what's your mission? That's a great, that's a great um, reflective question because I would love to do a first ascent on every continent around the world. I think that— A first time for any human, yeah. not man or woman, but anyone. Yeah. A first ascent— on every continent. Yeah, so that's one one of my like more like endemic climbing mm. goals. I think that climbing creates the space for exploration and and connectedness. That like I just went to the Middle East for my first time in October, and living and growing up in this Western world, we are fed kind of like these like ideas of what other parts of the world look like. And I think that it's not until you actually travel and immerse yourself in a different culture that you see so many human commonalities. Mm-hmm. And that is what enables us to be better global citizens. It's like you learn about the world through traveling and through experiences. And so with climbing, I'd like to travel to more places and really bring climbing to places that may not actually have climbing already. And then also educate more people about what our sport is. Serve as an ambassador and spokesperson for our sport as it grows into all these different spaces in the Olympics, in the outdoor space. Try and encourage people to conserve and protect our environment. And I work with the Women's Sports Foundation. I'm on the board. And the whole concept is equal pay and equal play for women in sports. So bringing more attention. I've also got this like series that I do. It's 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, so each Tuesday, it's it runs on outside TV and then I post it to my YouTube channel too. But the whole concept was like bring people into my world a little bit more and, and provide this behind the scenes glimpse of what my life looks like on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So it's um, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like creating content. A lot of what I do is doing video projects and working with other people. And I don't really know beyond that. Like yeah. it's kind of like what's exciting and intimidating is that if you asked me five years ago, what are you gonna be doing today in 2018? I like I have no idea. I had no idea I'd have like the awesome opportunity to be talking with you. Sure. So yeah. So you're present to what's happening every week, every month, but also excited about potential in the future too. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's like a certain roadmap that you can have that gives you a sense of direction. Mm-hmm. But then you can't you can't really like put every sort of pin in the road or like yeah. stoplight that's gonna yeah. go. That's cool. Is there any question you would like to uh, to answer that maybe people usually don't ask you that you wish they did? Oh, that's a good question. Or anything you think we should know about you that maybe most people don't know about. Oh, well, most people know, but my favorite color is pink. Okay. Um, I also have a superstition. I always have to paint my nails pink before, like, a achievement that really? I want to do. And, I mean, I mentioned that I'm a dual citizen with Canada. A lot of people don't know that, actually, because I competed for the U.S. team. Mm. Um, Smart move, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadians didn't think so. Well, I guess I could talk a little bit about my next year's plans. Like I have a trip through South America in the spring, and then I have a I have a climb in Central Africa that I want to accomplish in July. And 
a climb up El Cap in Yosemite in the fall. And then kind of like these other sporadic trips throughout the year. But that's kind of like on the horizon. So Are these part of the first ascent in every continent? Is this part of um, that? Yeah. So, well, in Central Africa, it would be a second ascent and first female ascent. Mm. And in Bolivia and Argentina, it would be a series of first ascents and some first female ascents and just overall exploration. There isn't much climbing in Bolivia that exists already. So something that I think that climbing has this amazing capability of improving and bolstering the ecotourism landscape of underdeveloped regions in the world. So like we did that in Indonesia. I did a sea kayaking and climbing trip where the whole mission was to develop the ecotourism industry and create an alternative for the economic infrastructure to counter the mining industry that was really destructing the natural environment and the natural community there. So we went to like rural islands in Indonesia, um, like Sumba and Malo, and it was a really moving project to be a part of. So I'd like to replicate that, that kind of like that trip in different areas around the world. That's cool. How can people support you and your mission and follow you? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Instagram, Sasha D. Julian, just my name. Um, Staying tuned with, like, the content. Normally, if I have, like, a call to action, I'll throw it up on my website. It's just myname.com or on social media. Okay. I try and keep that current. Yeah, the Instagram is inspiring. You got a lot of amazing photos and videos there, so make sure you guys check that out. We'll link it all up here. Final couple questions for you. This one's called The Three Truths. And um, if there was your last day many years from now on Earth, and you got to choose the day that you got to leave. Okay. You get to choose the day, any day in the future, but you got to finally pick a day. And you get to leave behind three things you know to be true about all of your experiences in life. I call it the three truths. These yeah. are the lessons that you would share with the world. Like philosophies. Yeah. Your okay. lessons, your truths. And people wouldn't have access to any other content that you've ever created. This is all they would have access to are these three truths. Oh, great. What would you say are yours? What would you share with all of us? Kindness. I think that, like, no matter who you are, no matter, like, what you've accomplished, just human kindness is so important, and that's what connects us all. Mm-hmm. Um, passion. That's, like, such a driving force yeah. in my life. And what I think that no matter if it's sports or music or arts, like, Find your passion and live your life by that. And I think, gosh, third one of like my lasting legacy, <laughs> perseverance. And no matter what what sort of like doubt you're faced with or negativity, um, roadblocks, like you can always achieve what you want if you will yourself the most. And I think that like the universe is on your side, so persevere and and believe it and be a good person so yeah kindness passion and perseverance well i gotta acknowledge you sasha for a moment because it's been inspiring to watch your journey over the last couple years i just feel like you you're constantly showing up consistently and doing and challenging yourself you're not just doing the easy thing you're doing the hard thing and you're inspiring people through your message you're inspiring all humans but also women who maybe feel like there are certain challenges in their life they don't feel like they can overcome. You're helping them and inspiring them to do that in their own life. So I, I acknowledge you for that. all that, and I acknowledge you for constantly paving the way and doing the challenging things and being a good person and, and living with passion because I feel it. 
and it's inspiring. And thank you for being here. I appreciate this. I'm glad we got to make this finally happen. Me too. No, thank you so much for having yeah, me here. Of course. It's such a pleasure. My final question is what's your definition of greatness? My definition of greatness is just loving what you do every day. Sasha. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And there you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this all about the world championship mindset, how to overcome challenges, how to trust your intuition, how to face adversity head on to achieve what you want. This is a powerful example of how Sasha has been doing this in her life over and over, constantly tackling new challenges, new obstacles that have never been done before. And she is doing them. And I hope you've got some inspiration to apply this to your life with whatever you are going through right now. Make sure to share this with your friends. LewisHowes.com slash 731. Tag at Sasha DeJulian as well. That's D-I-G-I-U-L-I-A-N. Let us know what you thought about this episode and interview. Make sure to follow her journey as it is a very inspiring one. Big And to bring us back to the beginning, Helen Keller said, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. And Marcus Aurelius said, You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you will find strength. As always, I love you so very much. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.